If you're enjoying this book, then I know you will love the exclusive stories on our premium feed. Follow the link in the show notes to try it free for seven days and dive into more of your favorite sleepy stories. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Little Women, but first, just take some time here to relax. Imagine you are sitting on a shingly beach. It is a mostly cloudy day, but you're warm enough under your blanket. The sun is trying to peek out from the clouds and has managed to warm the small pebbles you're sat on. There's nobody around you but the seabirds that hop across the surf in front of you and soar overhead. You lean back on your hands and breathe in the salty sea air. Try to match your breath with the sound of the waves rolling in and down. In and down. This is a safe place where you can feel totally at peace. Come back to this image whenever you need to as I recap our last episode. Previously, Joe was back with Mommy, Father, and Beth. All had come together with Mr. Lawrence to see Laurie graduate college with honor and were ever so proud of their boy. Laurie was to stay one more night, but Joe promised to meet him the next morning at the station to walk him home. Joe was still worried about Laurie's feelings for her, and sure enough, the next day, he expressed his love and asked her to marry him. Joe was devastated to have to break his heart, but told Laurie that she really didn't feel that way and thought they would make a terrible couple, but wanted ever so much to remain friends. Laurie was indeed heartbroken and went back to his grandfather's in dismay. Joe called on Mr. Lawrence in private, worried about Laurie, and gave the grandfather notice of what had happened. Mr. Lawrence convinced Laurie to go abroad with him to Europe. This way he could keep an eye on his grandson without being too overbearing. Joe saw Laurie off on the day they departed and sadly assured him once more that they could not be together. Joe went back to New York But when she returned again in spring, she found Beth quite changed. She took her away to the seaside once more, where Beth announced that she believed her days on this earth were numbered. And that's where we pick up tonight, with Joe and Beth still sat on the beach, coming to terms with what lies ahead. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 36 Beth's Secret Continued I don't care what becomes of anybody but you, Beth. You must get well, said Joe. I want to, oh, so much. I try, but every day I lose a little and feel most sure that I shall never gain it back. It's like the tide, Joe, when it turns. It goes slowly, but it can't be stopped. It shall be stopped. Your tide must not turn so soon. 
19 is too young, Beth. I can't let you go. I'll work and pray and fight against it. I'll keep you in spite of everything. There must be ways. It can't be too late. God won't be so cruel as to take you from me, said poor Jo rebelliously, but her spirit was far less piously submissive than Beth's. Simple, sincere people seldom speak much of their piety. It shows itself in acts rather than in words, and has more influence than homilies or protestations. Beth could not reason upon or explain the faith that gave her courage and patience to give up life and cheerfully wait for death. Like a confiding child, she asked no questions, but left everything to God and nature, father and mother of us all, feeling sure that they, and they only, could teach and strengthen heart and spirit for this life and the life to come. She did not rebuke Joe with saintly speeches, only loved her better for her passionate affection and clung more closely to the dear human love from which our Father never means us to be weaned, but through which he draws us closer to himself. She could not say, I'm glad to go, for life was very sweet for her. She could only cry, I try to be willing, while she held fast to Joe as the first bitter wave of this great sorrow broke over them together. By and by, Beth said with recovered serenity, You'll tell them this when we go home. I think they will see it without words, sighed Joe. for now it seemed to her that Beth changed every day. Perhaps not. I've heard that people who love best are often blindest to such things. If they don't see it, you will tell them for me. I don't want any secrets, and it's kinder to prepare them. Meg has John and the babies to comfort her, but you must stand by father and mother, won't you, Joe? If I can. But Beth, I don't give up yet. I'm going to try to believe that this is a sick fancy and not let you think it's true, said Joe, trying to speak cheerfully. Beth lay a minute, thinking, and then said in her quiet way, I don't know how to express myself and shouldn't try to anyone but you because I can't speak out except to my Joe. I only mean to say that I have a feeling that it never was intended I should live long. I'm not like the rest of you. I never made any plans about what I'd do when I grew up. I never thought of being married, as you all did couldn't seem to imagine myself anything but stupid little Beth, trotting about at home, of no use anywhere but there. I never wanted to go away, and the hard part now is the leaving you all. I'm not afraid, but it seems as if I should be homesick for you even in heaven. Joe could not speak. And for several minutes there was no sound but the sigh of the wind and the lapping of the tide. A white-winged gull flew by with the flash of sunshine on its silvery breast. Beth watched it till it vanished and her eyes were full of sadness. A little grey-coated sandbird came tripping over the beach peeping softly to itself, as if enjoying the sun and sea. It came quite close to Beth and looked at her with a friendly eye and sat upon a warm stone, dressing its wet feathers, quite at home. Beth smiled and felt comforted 
for the tiny thing seemed to offer its small friendship and remind her that a pleasant world was still to be enjoyed. <laughs> Dear little bird, see Joe how tame it is. I like peeps better than the gulls. They're not so wild and handsome. They seem happy, confiding little things. I used to call them my birds last summer. and Mother said they reminded her of me. Busy, Quaker-colored creatures, always near the shore, and always chirping that contented little song of theirs. You are the gull, Joe, strong and wild, fond of the storm and the wind, flying far out to sea and happy all alone. Meg is the turtle dove, and Amy is like the lark she writes about, trying to get up among the clouds, but always dropping down into its nest again. Dear little girl, she's so ambitious, but her heart is good and tender. No matter how high she flies, she will never forget home. I hope I shall see her again. She seems so far away. She's coming in the spring, and I mean that you shall all be ready to see and enjoy her. I'm going to have you well and rosy by that time, began Joe, feeling that all of the changes in bed, the talking change was the greatest, for it seemed to cost no effort now, and she thought aloud in a way quite unlike bashful Beth. Joe, dear, don't hope anymore. Won't do any good, I'm sure of that. We won't be miserable, but enjoy being together while we wait. We'll have happy times, for I don't suffer much. I think the tide will go out easily if you help me. Joe leaned down to kiss the tranquil face, and with that silent kiss, she dedicated herself, soul and body, to Beth. She was right. There was no need of any words when they got home, for father and mother saw plainly now what they had prayed to be saved from seeing. Tired with her short journey, Beth went at once to bed, saying how glad she was to be home. And when Joe went down, she found that she would be spared the hard task of telling Beth's secret. Her father stood, leaning his head on the mantelpiece, and did not turn as she came in. But her mother stretched out her arms, as if for help, and Joe went to comfort her without a word. Chapter 37 New Impressions At three o'clock in the afternoon, all the fashionable world at Nice may be seen on the promenade d'Anglais. A charming place for the wide walk, bordered with palms, flowers, and tropical shrubs, is bounded on one side by the sea, on the other by the grand drive, lined with hotels and villas, while beyond lie orange orchards and the hills. Many nations are represented, many languages spoken, many costumes worn, and on a sunny day, the spectacle is as bright and brilliant as a carnival. All manner of people drive, sit, or saunter here, chatting over the news and criticizing the latest celebrity who has arrived. Ristori or Dickens, Victor Emmanuel, or the Queen of the Sandwich Islands. The equipages are as varied as the company and attract as much attention, especially the low basket barouche in which ladies drive themselves with a pair of dashing ponies delicate nets to keep their voluminous flounces from overflowing the diminutive vehicles, 
and the little grooms on the perch behind. Along this walk, on Christmas Day, a tall young man walked slowly with his hands behind him and a somewhat absent expression of countenance. He looked like an Italian, was dressed like an Englishman, and had the independent air of an American, a combination which caused sundry pairs of feminine eyes to look approvingly after him, and sundry dandies in black velvet suits with rose-colored neckties, buff gloves, and orange flowers in their buttonholes to shrug their shoulders and then envy him his inches. There were plenty of pretty faces to admire, but the young man took little notice of them, except to glance now and then at some blonde girl in blue. Presently, he strolled out of the promenade and stood a moment at the crossing, as if undecided whether to go and listen to the band in the public gardens or to wander along the beach toward Castle Hill. The quick trot of Pony's feet made him look up as one of the little carriages containing a single young lady came rapidly down the street. The lady was young, blonde, and dressed in blue. He stared a minute. Then his whole face woke up, and waving his hat like a boy, he hurried forward to meet her. Oh, Laurie, is it really you? I thought you'd never come, cried Amy, dropping the reins and holding out both hands to the great scandalization of a French mamma who hastened her daughter's steps, lest she should be demoralized by beholding the free manners of this girl. I was detained, by the way, as I promised to send a Christmas gift with you. And here I am. How is your grandfather? When did you come? Where are you staying? Very well. Last night, at the Chauvin. I called at your hotel, but you were out. I have so much to say. I don't know where to begin. Get in and we can talk at our ease. I was going for a drive and longing for company. Flo's saving up for tonight. What happens then? Aboard. A Christmas party at our hotel. There are many Americans there, and they give it in honor of the day. You'll go with us, of course. Aunt will be charmed. Ah, thank you. Where now? Asked Laurie, leaning back and folding his arms, a proceeding which suited Amy, who preferred to drive for her parasol whip and blue reins over the white pony's back afforded her infinite satisfaction. I'm going to the bankers first for letters, then to Castle Hill. The view is so lovely and I like to feed the peacocks. Have you ever been there? Often, years ago, but I don't mind having a look at it. Now, tell me all about yourself. The last I heard of you, your grandfather wrote that he expected you from Berlin. Yes, I spent a month there and joined him in Paris where he is settled for the winter. He has friends there and finds plenty to amuse him, so I go and come and we get on capitally. That's a sociable arrangement, said Amy, missing something in Laurie's manner, though she couldn't tell what. Why, you see, he hates to travel, and I hate to keep still, so we suit ourselves and there's no trouble. I'm often with him and he enjoys my adventures, well, I like to feel that someone is glad to see me when I get back from my wanderings. Oh, dirty old hole, isn't it? He added with a look of disgust as they drove along the boulevard to the Place Napoleon in the old city. The dirt is picturesque, so I don't mind. The river and the hills are delicious. And these glimpses of the narrow cross streets are my delight. Now we shall have to wait for that procession to pass. It's going to the Church of St. John. 
while Lori listlessly watched the procession of priests under the canopies, white veiled nuns bearing lighted tapers and some brotherhood in blue chanting as they walked. Amy watched him and felt a new sort of shyness steal over her, for he was changed and she could not find the merry-faced boy she left in the moody-looking man beside her. He was handsomer than ever and greatly improved, she thought. But now that the flush of pleasure at meeting her was over, he looked tired and spiritless. Not sick, nor exactly unhappy, but older and graver than a year or two of prosperous life should have made him. She couldn't understand it and did not venture to ask questions, so she shook her head and touched up her ponies as the procession wound away across the arches of the Paglioni Bridge and vanished in the church. Que pensez-vous? she said, airing her French, which had improved in quantity, if not in quality, since she came abroad. That mademoiselle has made a good use of her time, and the result is charming, replied Laurie, bowing with his hand on his heart and an admiring look. She blushed with pleasure, but somehow the compliment did not satisfy like the blunt praises he used to give her at home when he promenaded her around on festival occasions and told her she was altogether jolly with a hearty smile and an approving pat on the head. She didn't like the new tone, for though not blasé, it sounded indifferent in spite of the look. If that's the way he's going to grow up, I wish he'd stay a boy, she thought, with a curious sense of disappointment and discomfort, trying meantime to seem quite easy and light. At Avigdor's, she found the precious home letters, and, giving the reins to Laurie, read them luxuriously as they wound up the shady road between green hedges where tea roses bloomed as freshly as in June. Beth is very poorly, Mother says. I often think I ought to go home, but all they say is stay. So I do, for I shall never have another chance like this, said Amy, looking sober over one page. I think you're right there. You could do nothing at home. It's a great comfort to them to know that you're well and happy enjoying so much, my dear. He drew a little nearer and looked more like his old self as he said that, and the fear that sometimes weighed on Amy's heart was lightened, for the look, the act, the brotherly, my dear, seemed to assure her that if any trouble did come, she would not be alone in a strange land. Presently, she laughed, and showed him a small sketch of Joe in her scribbling suit, with the bow rampantly erect upon her cap, and issuing from her mouth the words, Genius Burns. Laurie smiled, took it, put it in his vest pocket to keep it from blowing away, and listened with interest to the lively letter Amy read him. This will be a regularly merry Christmas to me, with presents in the morning, you and letters in the afternoon, and a party at night, said Amy as they alighted among the ruins of the old fort, and a flock of splendid peacocks came trooping about them, tamely waiting to be fed. While Amy stood laughing on the bank above him as she scattered crumbs to the brilliant birds, Laurie looked at her as she had looked at him, with a natural curiosity to see what changes time and absence had wrought. He found nothing to perplex or disappoint, much to admire and approve for overlooking a few little affectations of speech and manner, 
she was as sprightly and graceful as ever, with the addition of that indescribable something in dress and bearing which we call elegance. Always mature for her age, she had gained a certain aplomb in both carriage and conversation, which made her seem more of a woman of the world than she was. But her old petulance now and then showed itself. Her strong will still held its own, and her native frankness was unspoiled. Laurie did not read all this while he watched her feed the peacocks, but he saw enough to satisfy and interest him, and carried away a pretty little picture of a bright-faced girl standing in the sunshine, which brought out the soft hue of her dress, the fresh color of her cheeks, the golden gloss of her hair, and made her a prominent figure in the pleasant scene. As they came up onto the stone plateau that crowns the hill, Amy waved her hand as if welcoming him to her favorite haunt and said, pointing here and there, Do you remember the cathedral and the corso, the fishermen dragging their nets in the bay, and the lovely road to Villa Franca? Schubert's tower just below, and best of all, that speck far out to sea, which they say is Corsica. I remember. It's not much changed, he answered without enthusiasm. How what Joe would give for a sight of that famous speck, said Amy, feeling in good spirits and anxious to see him also. Yes was all he said, but he turned and strained his eyes to see the island, which a greater usurper than even Napoleon now made interesting in his sight. Take a good look at it for her sake, and then come and tell me what you've been doing with yourself all this while, said Amy, seating herself, ready for a good talk. But she did not get it for though he joined her and answered all her questions freely, she could only learn that he had roved about the continent and been to Greece. So after idling away an hour, they drove home again, and having paid his respects to Mrs. Carroll, Laurie left them, promising to return in the evening. It must be recorded of Amy that she deliberately prinked that night, Time and absence had done its work on both the young people. She had seen her old friend in a new light, not as a boy, but as a handsome and agreeable man, and she was conscious of a very natural desire to find favor in his sight. Amy knew her good points and made the most of them with the taste and skill which is a fortune to a poor and pretty woman. Tarleton and Toole were cheap at Nice, so she enveloped herself in them on such occasions, and following the sensible, English fashion of simple dress for young girls, got up charming little toilettes with fresh flowers, a few trinkets, and all manner of dainty devices which were both inexpensive and effective. It must be confessed that the artist sometimes got possession of the woman and indulged in antique coiffures, statuesque attitudes, and classic draperies. But, dear heart, we all have our little weaknesses and find it easy to pardon such in the young who satisfy our eyes with their comeliness and keep our hearts merry with their artless vanities. I do want him to think I look well and tell them so at home, said Amy to herself as she put on Flo's old white silk ball dress and covered it with a cloud of fresh illusion 
out of which her white shoulders and golden head emerged with a most artistic effect. Her hair she had the sense to let alone, after gathering up the thick waves and curls into a knot at the back of her head. It's not the fashion, and I can't afford to make a fright of myself, she used to say when advised to frizzle, puff, or braid as the latest style commanded. Having no ornaments fine enough for this important occasion, Amy looped her fleecy skirts with rose clusters of azalea and framed the white shoulders in delicate green vines. Remembering the painted boots, she surveyed her white satin slippers with girlish satisfaction and chasséed down the room, admiring her aristocratic feet all by herself. My new fan just matches my flowers, my gloves fit to a charm, and the real lace on Aunt's mouchoir gives an air to my whole dress. If only I had a classical nose and mouth, I should be perfectly happy, she said, surveying herself with a critical eye and a candle in each hand. In spite of this affliction, she looked unusually happy and graceful as she glided away. She seldom ran. It did not suit her style, she thought, for being tall, the stately and Juno-esque was more appropriate than the sportive or piquant. She walked up and down the long saloon while waiting for Laurie, and once arranged herself under the chandelier, which had a good effect upon her hair. Then she thought better of it, and went away to the other end of the room, as if ashamed of the girlish desire to have the first view a propitious one. It so happened that she could not have done a better thing for Laurie came in so quietly she did not hear him, and as she stood at the distant window, with her head half-turned and her hand gathering up her dress, the slender white figure against the red curtains was as effective as a well-placed statue. "'Good evening, Diana,' said Laurie, with the look of satisfaction she liked to see in his eyes." when they rested on her. Good evening, Apollo, she answered, smiling back at him, for he too looked unusually debonair, and the thought of entering the ballroom on the arm of such a personable man caused Amy to pity the four plain Mrs. Davis from the bottom of her heart. Here are your flowers. I arranged them myself, said Laurie, handing her a delicate nosegay in a holder that she had long coveted as she daily passed it in Cardelia's window. How kind you are, she exclaimed gratefully. If I'd known you were coming, I'd have had something ready for you today, though not as pretty as this, I'm afraid. Well, thank you. It isn't what it should be, but you have improved it, he added as she snapped the silver bracelet on her wrist. Please don't. I thought you liked that sort of thing. Not from you. It doesn't sound natural, and I like your old bluntness better. I'm glad of it, he answered with a look of relief, then buttoned her gloves for her and asked if his tie was straight, just as he used to do when they went to parties together at home. The company assembled in the long salle à manger that evening, which was as such seas nowhere but on the continent. The hospitable Americans had invited every acquaintance they had in Nice, and having no prejudice against titles, secured a few to add luster to their Christmas ball. A Russian prince condescended to sit in a corner for an hour and talk with a massive lady, dressed like Hamlet's mother in black velvet, 
with a pearl bridle under her chin. A Polish count, aged 18, devoted himself to the ladies, who pronounced him a fascinating dear. Baron Rothschild's private secretary affably beamed upon the world as if his master's name crowned him with a golden halo. A stout Frenchman who knew the emperor came to indulge his mania for dancing, and Lady de Jones, a British matron, adorned the scene with her little family of eight. Of course, there were many light-footed American girls, handsome English girls, and a few plain French demoiselles, likewise the usual set of traveling young gentlemen who disported themselves happily, while mamas of all nations lined the walls and smiled upon them benignly when they danced with their daughters. Any young girl can imagine Amy's state of mind when she took the stage that night, leaning on Laurie's arm. She knew she looked well, she loved to dance, and she felt that her foot was on her native heath in a ballroom and enjoyed the delightful sense of power which comes when young girls first discover the new and lively kingdom they are born to rule by virtue of beauty, youth, and womanhood. She did pity the Davis girls, who were awkward, plain, and destitute of escort, except a grim papa and three grimmer maiden aunts, and she bowed to them in her friendliest manner as she passed, which was good of her as it permitted them to see her dress and burn with curiosity to know who her distinguished-looking friend might be. With the first burst of the band, Amy's color rose, her eyes began to sparkle, and her feet to tap the floor impatiently, for she danced well and wanted Laurie to know it. Therefore, the shock she received can better be imagined than described when he said in a perfectly tranquil tone, Do you care to dance? One usually does at a ball. Her amazed look and quick answer caused Laurie to repair his error as fast as possible. I meant the first dance. May I have the honor? I can give you one if you put off the count. He dances divinely, but he will excuse me as you are an old friend, said Amy, hoping that the name would have a good effect and show Laurie that she was not to be trifled with. Nice little boy, a daughter of the gods, divinely tall and most divinely fair, was all the satisfaction she got, however. The set in which they found themselves was composed of English, and Amy was compelled to walk decorously through a cotillion, feeling all the while as if she could dance the tarantella with relish. Laurie resigned her to the nice little boy and went to do his duty to Flo without securing Amy for the joys to come which reprehensible want of forethought was properly punished, for she immediately engaged herself till supper, meaning to relent if he then gave any signs penitence. She showed him her ball book with a demure satisfaction when he strolled instead of rushed up to claim her for the next. A glorious poker rendoa, but his polite regrets didn't impose upon her, and when she galloped away with the Count, she saw Laurie sit down by her aunt with an actual expression of relief. That was unpardonable, and Amy took no more notice of him for a long while, except for a word now and then when she came to her chaperone between the dances for a necessary pin or a moment's rest. 
Her anger had a good effect, however, for she hid it under a smiling face and seemed unusually blithe and brilliant. Laurie's eyes followed her with pleasure, for she neither romped nor sauntered, but danced with spirit and grace, making the delightsome pastime what it should be. He very naturally fell to studying her from this new point of view, and before the evening was half over, had decided that little Amy was going to make a very charming woman. It was a lively scene, for soon the spirit of the social season took possession of everyone, and Christmas merriment made all faces shine, hearts happy, and heels light. The musicians fiddled, tooted, and banged as if they enjoyed it. Everybody danced who could, and those who couldn't, admired their neighbors with uncommon warmth. The air was dark with the Davises, and many Joneses gambled like a flock of young giraffes. The golden secretary darted through the room like a meteor with a dashing Frenchwoman who carpeted the floor with her pink satin train. But the emperor's friend covered himself with glory, for he danced everything, whether he knew it or not, and introduced impromptu pirouettes when the figures bewildered him. The boyish abandon of that stout man was charming to behold, for though he carried weight, he danced like a rubber ball. He ran, he flew, He pranced, his face glowed, his ball head shone, his coattails waved wildly, his pumps actually twinkled in the air, and when the music stopped, he wiped the drops from his brow and beamed upon his fellow men like a French pickwick without glasses. Amy and her dance partner distinguished themselves by equal enthusiasm, but more graceful agility, and Laurie found himself involuntarily keeping time to the rhythmic rise and fall of the white slippers as they flew by as indefatigably as if winged. When little Vladimir finally relinquished her with assurances that he was desolated to leave so early, she was ready to rest and see how her recreant night had borne his punishment. It had been successful, for at three and twenty, blighted affections find a balm in friendly society, and young nerves will thrill, young blood dance, and healthy young sprites rise when subjected to the enchantment of beauty, light, music, and motion. Laurie had a waked-up look as he rose to give her his seat, and when he hurried away to bring her some supper, she said to herself with a satisfied smile, Ah, I thought that would do him good. You look like Balzac's femme payante par elle-même, he said as he fanned her with one hand and held her coffee cup in the other. My rouge won't come off, said Amy, rubbing her brilliant cheek and showing him her white glove with a sober simplicity that made him laugh outright. What do you call this stuff? he asked touching a fold of her dress that had blown over his knee. Illusion. Good name for it. It's very pretty. New thing, isn't it? It's as old as the hills. You've seen it on dozens of girls, and you never found out it was that pretty till now. I never saw it on you before, which accounts for the mistake, you see. None of that. It's forbidden. I'd rather take coffee than compliments just now. 
No, don't lounge. It makes me nervous. Laurie sat bolt upright and meekly took her empty plate, feeling an odd sort of pleasure in having little Amy order him about. She had lost her shyness now and felt an irresistible desire to trample on him, as girls have a delightful way of doing when lords of creation show any signs of subjection. Where did you learn all this sort of thing? He asked with a quizzical look. As this sort of thing is rather a vague expression, would you kindly explain? Returned Amy, knowing perfectly well what he meant, but wickedly leaving him to describe what is indescribable. Well, the general air, the style, self-possession, the the illusion, you know, laughed Laurie, breaking down and helping himself out of his quandary with the new word. Amy was gratified, but of course didn't show it, and demurely answered, Foreign life polishes one in spite of oneself. I study as well as play, and as for this, with a little gesture towards her dress, my tool is cheap. Posy used to be had for nothing, and I'm used to making the most of my poor little things. Amy rather regretted that last sentence, fearing it wasn't in good taste, but Laurie liked her better for it and found himself both admiring and respecting the brave patience that made the most of opportunity and the cheerful spirit that covered poverty with flowers. Amy did not know why he looked at her so kindly, nor why he filled up her book with his own name and devoted himself to her for the rest of the evening in the most delightful manner. But the impulse that wrought this agreeable change was the result of the new impression which both of them were unconsciously giving and receiving.